Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum. I'm the editor of the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, and welcome to this journal club. To learn about future events and CME, just go to www.joei.pub. That's www.joei.pub. So with that said, uh, I'm going to start with the, uh, with the uh, discussion and sort of uh, ask uh, uh, the, both of the authors to uh, introduce, introduce themselves, okay? I'm going to stop my share. Uh, and let's start with an introduction. Uh, I guess we'll start with uh, uh, Gary first. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Ira, and thanks to the, the Journal Club for, for having us on this um, event. Um, so I, I am a healthcare transactions attorney. I've been practicing for over 30 years, primarily and definitely exclusively in the last 10 years, uh, representing physician practices mainly and, and some other organizations like ambulatory surgery centers and the like on strategic transactions. I'm part of Epstein, Becker and Green, which is a national healthcare firm with over 170 healthcare lawyers. And we have offices all over the country. And like I said, we've been representing a lot of physicians, including most recently the last two years, we've represented uh, seven orthopedic groups in transactions with private equity firms, and we're currently in process with another eight uh, right now. So this is, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this um, shortly, but that's, that's what I do. I help guide through legal advice, uh, physicians and groups through these transactions. All right. And uh, Hector? Yes, good evening, everyone. Pleasure to be with you. Um, uh, I am a managing director and the co-leader of healthcare investment banking for Focal Point Partners, which is a fully diversified investment banking and financial advisory uh, services platform. Um, and I've specialized my entire career in being at the service uh, of healthcare providers of all types. Uh, my primary area of focus is in working with single specialty and multi-specialty physician practices and really charting the course and, and outlining the various strategic transactional alternatives available to them. Um, but my role is, is largely to, to drive, curate, and execute upon the actual M&A advisory process uh, from ideation uh, to sitting down many, many years ahead of even uh, any physician group contemplating a deal all the way through, obviously, you know, processing every singular aspect and facet of the M&A of the process. That's really our role as the financial advisor. And for the last several years, Gary and his team and, and, and our team uh, within the healthcare practice have worked hand in glove in really providing that 360 degree perspective, point of view and capability uh, because healthcare is very complicated. Uh, you have to really understand the legal, the financial, the clinical and the regulatory aspects uh, within a, a, a innately complex uh, infrastructure that is mergers and acquisitions. So that's a little bit of background and it's a pleasure to be here with you all. That's a good deal. All right. And again, if anyone has questions along the way, um, I very much uh, would like you to just put them in the chat. 
So first I'm going to ask, um, well, I'll ask both of you and whoever wants to pop up with the answer. Um, why is this currently such a trend right now? Why this is this seems to have come out of the woodwork, like out of nowhere, the the idea of private equity and 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 groups, and it it seems to have taken on like a firestorm of interest. So what's going on in the climate now? That that's that's driving this. So maybe I'll take a stab at that first, and then let Please. Hector chime in too. So just so you know, the 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 concept of of consolidation among single specialty groups has been going on for 20 years. Um, with you know, it started with dental practices, then ophthalmology and eye care practices then dermatology, pain management, and, and more recently, gastroenterology, urology, OBGYN. It's really all over, um, mainly, mainly um, surgical subspecialties. And, and the reason for that is they're, you know, like orthopedics, they're all fragmented. There's so many groups, you know, hundreds, thousands of groups around the country. And, um, Consolidation has, has certain benefits and the, there are investors that are, 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 are pushing this consolidation because they see the benefits and have been very successful at it. So orthopedics really started um, going very strong about, you know, in terms of popping up through the ground. You know, I would say about, about two and a half, three years ago, I actually represented the Stedman Clinic in its transaction, which was the second group to go with orthopedic care partners. And Hopco was out there. And then in that same year in 2018, 2019, there was a couple of more orthopedic platforms that, that sprouted, if you will. And from the end of, of, of 2020, there were eight platforms and then at the end, as of now, there's, there's 15. So it's almost doubled in one year. Um, and and uh, I think the reason is both the desire to make groups better and more competitive um, by investors. They, investors like surgical subspecialties because there's ASCs involved and there's other ancillaries. In fact, I think orthopedics has the most ancillaries you know, not only surgical centers, but imaging, physical therapy, durable medical equipment, orthopedic urgent care. Post-surgical rehabilitation. I mean, it, there really isn't a, another specialty that has so many revenue drivers, right? Because thinking about it empirically, uh, they, they view it with an investor's mind, right? How defensible, how much of a moat do you have around the business vis-a-vis multiple revenue streams, and the ability to um, scale those revenue streams uh, with you know, either, either de novo sites of care or growth via acquisition of, of smaller practices. Uh, oh, and usually it's both of those avenues of growth, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, that, and that's one reason. You know, I just wanted to, to lay out what, um, an, another kind of macroeconomic factor, which is a lot of physicians are, you know, facing a lot of headwinds, a lot of challenges, if you will. 
Um, you know, it's hard being a small practice. You know, we, we're working with practices of three or five doctors. We're also working with practices of 70 to 80 doctors and everything in between. I mean, even the large practices are, are facing challenges. You would think, oh, oh, they're big, they'll be okay. Well, they're okay longer, but they also see challenges with reductions in reimbursement and moving to value-based care and all these things that bigger is better and, and better in the sense that a bigger organization has more access to capital for expansion and competing. And when you talk about competing, a lot of, a lot of physicians that we've worked with have started to feel the pressure, the pressure of hospitals, competition with hospitals who, who already have consolidated primary care physicians. And now they're bringing into the hospital specialists. So once hospitals have you know, five or six orthopedic surgeons, where do you think all those referrals from all of their primary care physicians are gonna go to, or most of them? And then there's the big, the big organizations like Optum that are also have bought up all the large primary care practices of 100 or more doctors in the top 23 or 24 metropolitan areas around the country. And now they're bringing in orthopedists and specialists. Right. So there's just a lot of competition going on. And I think that's, that's really, you know, seeing the risk and the future uncertainty, you know, I think is a big factor too. Yeah, I have a question. You know, you talked about the concept of a platform. And then in the update, you talked about, there seems to be two parts of the anatomy in a sense of a private equity deal. There's a private equity people, I will call them the people with money. And then there's these, it's not a bad way to put it. And then there's these people like Hopco, Inspire. And so explain that, like Hopco is not really uh, a private equity company. They, they, are they more like a convener? I mean, what is the, explain those definitions for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, happy to take a first class at that. Um, so, so, so you're right. There are really, when you think about the landscape and transactional types, a platform really represents the initial investment by a, a private equity firm in a particular specialty or segment of the healthcare industry. In this instance, musculoskeletal and orthopedic care. Now, as they move out into the marketplace, and it usually begins locally very quickly, then it expands rapidly into a regional strategy, with the ideation of, of, of saying we can build and scale and, 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 and transfer best practices to eventually a platform that is national. Uh, that's sort of the ideal state uh, if you sort of put it in, 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 in a Harvard Business School case study of how do you get from point A to point B optimally. Um, to be determined for orthopedic care, we have seen certainly in, in dermatology, certainly in dental services and in other segments that have been consolidating for the last 10 to 15 plus years, we have seen those models be successful, uh, but certainly very early innings relative to, to orthopedic care. Um, but but in, in terms of uh, what's, what's the optimal end state, whether you're a platform or a bolt-on, uh, it, I'll give you a very good uh, lawyerly law school answer. The, the answer is it depends, right? It depends on what are your organizational and practice related goals and objectives. You know, to be a bolt on to a very strong partner 
that ha has very strong cultural, clinical, and quality of medicine alignment is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, whether that's what you strive to be versus being a platform and are there considerations structurally uh, and otherwise, sure. Uh, but, but it really, really begins with what are the challenges and potential opportunities that you see in your particular market um, and how could a potential partner organization help catalyze, effectuate, and secure what, what any clinical enterprise strives for, which is market, market relevance, but ideally market sustainability over the long term, right? And there are many ways to do that. There are just as there are as many examples of practices that have partnered with private equity, there are just as many, if not more, examples of practices that have remained independent. Um, Illinois Bone and Joint is a great example. Um, they've developed a great brand. They've developed the infrastructure. They, they now have the size and scale that access to capital can be realized as a, at a reasonable cost of capital. Uh, I, you know, if they went private equity, they could probably do even better. But, but, but there are a lot of case studies on both sides. It really comes down to, you know, what are the imperatives, challenges, and opportunities ahead of you? And how could a potential partnership and we 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 always say partnership is a is a is a is a is a, is a capital P because that could be an affiliation with your hospital and your health system, some form of a strategic joint venture with a a for profit ASC operator. Uh, it could be a, a myriad of alternatives. Um, this one just happens to have a lot of compelling attributes, and and we, we're hopeful to speak to to many of those tonight. Yeah, and, and Ira, let me just add to that. Actor explained really well whether a practice would be a platform investment, meaning it's big, it would be an investor's first foray into consolidating as opposed to a smaller practice, which would be an add-on to that first one. But I wanted to answer the other part of your question, which is that the private equity company um, firm invests in, in like a, when, you, when we use the word platform, like an MSO, in other mm -hmm. words, they're owners of this management company that, that is the one that um, has the relationship where all the executives are and all the billing okay. and CEO, CFO, right. managed care contracting. All of that goes into like a mega MSO. That's the company that the, the private equity company invests in. Got it. So like, like ONS, right? Yeah. Um, in Connecticut. They were the platform investment um, for- like To your point, Ira Hopko and the Core Institute, that's that's the vehicle, the MSO vehicle that um, Audax and Linden are invested in. That's also, by the way, the vehicle that to the extent that there's applicable rollover equity in these transactions, meaning you know, 75% of the purchase price is in cash, 25% is in rollover equity, the physician shareholders are rolling over and becoming owners of that entity alongside the, the private equity investors as well. So like in, in the example of Spire, so Kohlberg is the, is, is the private equity investor. Okay. They, they started with ONS. They changed the name to, of the platform to Spire and you have ONS and you have other groups that they've added since then. Um, and, and, and Spire is like the MSO platform. So Spire runs the practices with the equity backup of 
with the with the equity from the private equity company. Exactly. Exactly. And there's and and all of the 15 or 16 platforms are are the same way. So with Hopco, it's Audex and Linden, and 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 with with uh, orthopedic care partners, it's Varsity is the private equity investor. So that's that's the way it works. Yes. But I want to make it, and I don't want to go down too far the, the 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 structural technical rabbit hole unless everyone wants to, because we're happy to. We we love this stuff. Um, but but you said something, Ira, that I want to make sure we clarify that you know that that's the company that owns the practice. I mean, technically, that is the company that 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 owns the the 100% of the equity ownership of the MSO that has a strategic and unambiguously uh, 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 clear relationship with the PC entity. There is always a clinical practice entity because in most states, there are states like Arizona that don't have corporate practice of medicine laws, but in most states, non-physicians cannot own an equity ownership or stake in a clinical entity sure. uh, alongside, alongside doctors. In most states, you cannot do that. So the MSO becomes the vehicle with which you can then recapitalize with a non-physician owner like a private equity firm. But the, the, the PC and the clinical protocols and the management and autonomy of those clinical protocols, 100% of the time stay within the physicians. Um, there's always the biggest, one of the biggest questions we always get is, is someone on Wall Street wearing a pinstripe suit going to call me to tell me that I need to see more patients or that I need to see less patients or that I need to use this spinal implant instead of the one I know how to use because it's more clinically efficacious? The answer is no. Uh, and, and in most instances, we codify where it would be outside the boundary. It would basically be, you know, outside of the boundaries of the scope of the the partnership and the transaction that you're you're consummating and working to to protect yeah so i have a question um oh there's a um hold on there's a question i got here uh okay um how does one attract the attention of a larger entity in order to be considered okay so how how does a, a let's say you have a five-person practice in allentown pennsylvania Okay, how does how does that group attract the attention of uh, of a Hopco or a Spire and say we want to be a bolt on, or we want to be an add on, um, or we want to get we want to get into the game? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know we were, we want as they say in Hamilton, you know we want to be in the room. You know, how how does that five person group in Allentown? in Springfield, Massachusetts. Oh. Well, the, well, first they have, to come, they have to come to the Physicians Transactions Conference on March the 23rd and 24th in Chicago, Illinois. I'll be uh, there. The of the AAOS meeting, we'll all be there. Uh, at least come on the 23rd because we're going to host everyone at the gauge and, and you'll have some great food and some drinks at a minimum. But uh, uh, no, all joking aside, it, it, really, uh, it, it really goes down to um, coming in contact with the right team of advisors. You know, if they have local accounting firms or even consultancies that they've, that they've worked with in the past, it's really an outreach to those immediate term resources because if they don't have the, the requisite knowledge or expertise, they'll usually look to their network. Uh, and, and, and that's very much in the way that we get formally introduced 
to a lot of the groups that we've worked with and continue to work on behalf of today. Um, but it is a very specialized group of advisors. So you always need your, your transaction lawyer, your counsel. That's what Gary and his team do. Um, then in combination with that, you need a financial advisor, also known as an investment banker. That is really the one that uh, is the tip of the spear for every single aspect of the process. And at the same time is helping to negotiate, optimize and fine tune the outcome of every single process element um, always in concert with the attorney at every every single step of the way. But, um, you know, the, how do they get in the game is, you know, doing a little bit of research, um, understanding, you know, why is this happening? And it comes to, you know, coming to segments like this and, and learning what are the drivers and, and pros and cons and, and, and getting more information. And, and how could that potential pathway um, help enable growth, sustainability and long-term success of our clinical enterprise? And, um, in most instances, when we sit down and, and have an initial discussion with the practice, um, we come prepared with a preliminary estimation of value, a preliminary strategic alternatives analysis of what's happening in your market. You know, what, what are the market share trends and the shifts and considerations? What are some external variables? Uh, Gary mentioned Optum and, and other vertically integrated um, um, acquirers uh, and consolidators. That's becoming more prevalent in markets that five years ago, like, like, you know, Northwest Georgia, Rome, Georgia, that wouldn't be something that any healthcare provider would be worried about. That's a market that we're, we're seeing Optum in today uh, and, and will continue to be more and more of those non-urban and, and rural environments. So uh, let me, let me add to what Hector's saying um, to, to, to hone in on the question. So if you have a five physician orthopedic practice in, you know, just a small town USA or even in Lehigh Valley, um, Pennsylvania, you know, a smaller practice may or may not initially get the attention of, you know, now there's 16 platforms. So what we're seeing is that a lot of groups are getting phone calls, repeated phone calls, reach outs to uh, the CEO of the group or the head doctor or the, whatever. Or the, there, the chief so administrator. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's so many now that there's a lot of incoming. So I would say if you're a group of more than 10 doctors, you probably have gotten numerous phone calls and emails, either from investment bankers wanting to help you or from directly from these 16 platforms that are looking to try to add on. A smaller group like three to five, three to six, you know, might not get as much attention, although they still are getting phone calls. Right. If somebody's in the vicinity, like in your example, Lehigh Valley, if someone's in Philadelphia region, you know, they're gonna start to look around, you know, an hour drive, you know, a hundred miles. So I do think that, um, you know, the platforms that are in the article, in, in the update blog, we have a list of the 15 current platforms and there's one even additional that is is coming out any day now so that's why there's 16 but you could reach out to them the other part of the question was how do you know they won't go reach out to other groups in the area and the answer is well there's nothing that stops them from doing that there's 15 different platforms and there might only be three or four that are looking in your geography right although a lot of these are looking nationally so um that's what you have to do is you have to reach out to them if they haven't reached out to you 
or speak to an investment banker. And, and some groups might be too small for an investment banker, but start with an investment banker that can give you direction as to what your value is, whether they can help you or someone else. Now, if you're a group, uh, uh, Mar Marty Nichols asked this question, um, and uh, I think it's a really good one. So let's assume you're a group and you're maybe a 10 to 12 person group. You own, you own an ASC. Um, mm -hmm. You may own radiology. You may own three physical therapy places. Is everything all in or do you just buy part of the practice? The whole practice. The, the doctors, do the doctors have to give up every part of their ownership and things they have? Or, or how does that work in this field? Yeah, I mean, you have supreme optionality and that goes into the, the, the transaction planning and structuring phase early on. But we've seen it be practices that own their real estate, every single clinical site. They have an ASC uh, footprint that's owned. They even have, you know, in other specialties, pharmacies and other, other site of care assets. They can monetize all of that. And we can package it up as one singular vehicle, or we can do a sum of the parts. And if other, most, sometimes the only derivative that we see consistently is that folks don't necessarily want to sell their real estate for whatever reasons. Um, in that case, it's actually, it could be even more beneficial if you don't have a need to liquidate the real estate, because what you end up doing is you end up doing a, a, a long-term lease with a, with a much bigger entity that's a much more secured credit at even more preferential market lease terms. So there, 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 there's a lot of ways, but it really comes down to what, what do you want to do and why? And then we can help, in, help inform what, what, what are the alternatives. And let me add to that, Ira. So, so, so physical therapy and imaging, just as examples, durable medical equipment, they all need to be part of the practice entity under the Stark rules, right? Right. So, it, 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 so if, if you have imaging, you have physical therapy, that means it's all billed under the same tax ID as your practice. So in those instances, it's all, you're, you're not selling all, you're partnering on everything. And what's good about that is it adds value and you still have 30% or, or thereabouts going forward. But on ASCs, I want to talk about ASCs. ASCs are a little bit different. I've seen three different approaches. If the ASC is entirely owned by the practice, it will be part, and, it, and that's good because it, it's a big value driver. It will be part of the transaction. However, if the ASCs, a, a lot of practices doctors own in different ASCs and they don't own the whole thing. There's doctors from other orthopedic groups, urologists, whatever, gastroenterologists, multi-specialty. In those cases, it's kind of like a fork in the road. Um, on a bunch of deals I've worked on very recently, they don't even touch that because the doctors own fractional ownerships. But in some cases, if, if it's a big enough fractional ownership, the, the private equity uh, investor may want to take like a piece of that, like a half of that. Um, and, and that's just a separate negotiation in the case that, that, the, that, the, that, the, that the orthopedic surgeons own fractional interests. All right, we have yeah, another thing to put a bow on the real estate. Most private equity firms don't want to be in the real estate business. So they're, they're not really necessarily looking to monetize it, but there is a market for those real estate assets. So if the PE firm doesn't necessarily want to sell it, buy it, and the, the physicians own it and, and do want to sell it, um, we usually do a two-step transaction, but that's a separate one uh, relative to the PE option. 
So we have a question from, uh, well, Ramirez, that they have a PSA agreement with the hospital system. And now mm -hmm. they're tasked to grow the group to staff five or six of their regional hospitals. Yep. Okay. Is private equity still an option if you're under a PSA and maybe describe a PSA to everybody? So yeah, Gary, first, yeah, that's your, that's your, that's your power, Alan. Yeah, the, let me take the first step on this because we are working now with a couple of our orthopedic groups have PSAs. Yeah. And that, that could be, a, it, could, it could be a challenge, but we're, we're making it work, okay? So the hospitals usually are very negative. They don't want the doctors. Define PSA for everybody. A PSA is a professional services organization where the orthopedic group remains as an independent orthopedic group and has a PSA with the hospital, whereby all of the doctors are essentially leased over, even though it's called the PSA. All of their professional services are provided under the hospital or its captive friendly PC faculty practice plan, and it's billed that way. And the doctors get paid usually a certain dollar per RVU or some other financial arrangement that is unrelated to collections. It's based on their, on their services they provide. So they're very good for doctors, but it, it does, it, it can have the impact of limiting the ability to do a private equity transaction, but not necessarily. We're, we're seeing two potential avenues. One is to approach the hospital. Well, well, first of all, we've reviewed PSAs to see whether hospital consent would be required for a private equity transaction with the group, which would essentially be like a change of control, partial change of control of the group. And a lot of contracts, but not all PSAs that we've reviewed do require consent from the hospital. Now, one way of looking at that is, wow, the hospital should be happy. Someone else is paying these doctors a lot of money and they're still contracted with us and still aligned with us. But a lot of hospitals use PSAs really as a long-term stepping stone to trying to get them to be employed by the hospital. Got and in that, case, in that case, the hospitals, and we've seen a number of cases where hospitals are resistant. So what you need to do if they're resistant to it is, or if you think they're gonna be, you, you might not wanna ask, but if you think they're gonna be resistant to it, then you look at your options to terminate. And a lot of PSAs have, uh, you know, like a clause 90 days, 180 days, some are a one year notice to terminate, mm -hmm. or maybe the next term is, is gonna expire at the end of this year. So what you could do is you could hire an investment banker like Hector to market the group, um, even though and, as it comes out of the PSA. And if you get a contract with um, a private equity investor, once you ink that contract, then you give a notice to terminate if there's a 180 right. day clause or you have that deal effective December 31st, the last day of the expiration of the term of the PSA. So there's different ways to look at it. The challenge though, is that it's hard. It, it, it takes a lot of modeling for the investment bankers to try to show how this group is gonna operate independent of the hospital. That's right. why it would be better to have them continue with the PSA because you know what revenues they're generating. And it's a little bit hard to project what it would be like if we were separate from the hospital and independent. So it's a long-winded answer, but we're well, working on a bunch of those. I have another question. 
So let's assume you're a particularly large group um, uh, doing maybe, let's say, uh, three, 4,000 joint replacements, you know, 2,000 spines. You know, you, you're a big group in your area. What is, um, what is your advantage? What, what, so, and then what is your advantage to bolt on other groups? You know, five-person groups. How diluted do you get when, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the platform and then these five-person groups come on board, you know, what's the, do you, is your group getting fit, is your, because you're the platform, do you get a bigger piece of the pie and the bolt-ons get less? I mean, how, how is the, how is the equity determined? How do you make, how do you make money as a practice? I can take that. Um, well, it really comes down to the equity capitalization of the enterprise, right? Let's not distinguish between the NSO. Let's just think about the whole sort of entity. So it, it, it's always beneficial to be in as early as possible, right? Uh, for, 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 for many reasons, but, but, but certainly, you know, being dollar one first investor, you're typically going to be on parity with the private equity firm. Although, you know, in the last few years, even some of the bolt-ons and even some of the smaller bolt-ons um, have been granted sort of what's called peri pursue or, or on equal footing with all of the initial shareholder physicians as well as the private equity firms. So that's, it used to be that those, the, 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 the later in the game you came onto the platform, the more subordinated and less beneficial or, or, or less potentially valuable your rollover equity was. Uh, but, but those days, sort of the cap table has kind of sort of right-sized itself uh, today in this market uh, because physicians are demanding it, and rightly so. Everyone, if, if we're all going to be participatory in the contributions to growth, everyone should participate, participate in the upside vis-a-vis uh, -vis equity, vis -vis equity. And me, from a, a lawyer perspective, not a financial advisor perspective, the way I look at it is these these investors and 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 you really are talking about investors who are in physician services they've done dermatology ophthalmology whatever they're not just starting with their first i, I you know foray in, into orthopedics they have the experience these investors are very very smart like wharton mbas and chicago mbas they're very very smart kind of wall street guys and when they start with a big platform and let's say they have 700 shares and the doctors have 300 shares. You know, when they decide to add on smaller groups, they're doing it because they, they know that even though it, it might be dilutive of both the private equity 700 shares and then the 300 shares of the first big platform group, it makes sense. The private equity firms wouldn't be doing it. You know, Hector said, Parry Pursue. If they think it's good, it's good for them, then it's good for us too. Right. So and let me let me just give like a very as simple of an example as we can provide in terms of how, how does how does the value of your equity appreciate? How do you make money in these partnerships? Yeah. So the platform investment is made, right? And the enterprise is valued at a hundred million dollars, right? Um, the the physician shareholders elected to um, monetize 80% of that $100 million purchase price. So $80 million to the physician partners at the closing. There's a great party afterwards. Awesome. 20 million of it is going into the new co-entity, this top co, this new enterprise. And 
Um, they will own a 20% stake and in exchange for the 80 million and the 20% rollover, uh, the private equity investor now owns an 80% stake, right? In the equity capitalization. So now we go out into the universe initially locally, then regionally, eventually nationally, and we're aggregating more groups. That same structural alchemy of 80% of the cash to the doctors that sold 20% rollover equity in UCO is happening, but at a much smaller level. Now you're not looking at another $100 million practice. Maybe it's a $25 million purchase. Maybe it's a $15 million purchase. Maybe now you see that it makes sense to bring in a $5 million group, right? And now every, but that same bid math is happening. And what's happening to those initial physician investors alongside with the private equity firm is that their percentage ownership is being diluted as more shareholders are being brought on in the form of rollover equity. So you're saying, well, that's not good, Hector, because I own less of the company. Yeah, correct. But you own something at a less percentage that's worth so much more, right? So you're diluted on a percentage basis, but that instead of owning 20% uh, of something that's worth $100 million, you might end up owning 18% of something that's worth $500 million. So that's sort of how the bid math, the equity dilution, and the monetization of that rollover equity works. What the private equity community in this market environment is targeting is anywhere between three and four times what's called MOIC, multiple of invested capital. So okay. alongside them in this instance, that 20% rollover, that's $20 million, um, is being targeted at a return back to the physicians of $100 million on average. Now, you get, let's say you get a, a group, you got all your people. What happens when someone at age 55 or 65 or 60 retires? Yeah. So, so let, let me talk about that because that goes back, if you just give me two minutes, to one of your first questions is why are doctors doing this? And, and one of the other factors I call monetization. Right now, when that doctor you just described leaves the practice, retires, or maybe God forbid becomes disabled, the buyouts that doctors get in practices nowadays are not very significant. It doesn't reflect the true value of the practice. And, and, and so what happens is by doing a transaction, they, the true value of your practice is determined. You get 70 to 80% of that in cash and the rest in rollover equity. And now to answer your question, and that rollover equity is at that true value, not what's in your shareholder agreement that you get your capital account or 50% of trailing accounts receivable, this is the real value. And when you retire, you get bought out for the fair market value of that, let's say it's 30% or 20% ownership that you hold, you're gonna get bought out at fair market value, not what your old practice agreement says. So it's really um, a double whammy, lots of risks ahead and uncertainties. We wanna be part of a bigger practice. Let's monetize while the market's hot, take chips off the table, like 70% of that real value. And then we get back that 30% down the road, which increases in value over time as the platform increases in value. There was another question that was asked, uh, do these platforms qualify for the exemption granted at $75 million and publicly traded company? I'm assuming that meant stock 
exemptions? Yeah, the platforms are not are are, are not um, looked at that way under Stark. They're just not. Um, the practices themselves have to comply with Stark. Remember, this is a you know a management organization platform that's got the executives and the contracts to manage and whatnot. So if they're talking about the Stark exemption, um, my unders, I, I've never come across that being important because of the way most of these deals are worked where the practice itself separately complies with Stark and the MSO um, entity where the doctors have rollover equity is what grows in value. Mm -hmm. Okay, what would be, uh, and again, if anyone has questions, just type them in. Give me a reason, give me a situation where a particular group that is strong in an area, maybe you're in a part of Ohio or that you dominate that region anyway. Mm -hmm. um, what would be a reason for you not to go down this path? Because the way I'm hearing it is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm employed by a hospital and a safety net hospital. And, and I feel like taking my, uh, my department into private equity, but we can't, of course. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't th I don't think an all Medicaid practice is, is <laughs> interested in that. But I would, say, I would say that, you know, if you're a, a solid group that really dominates in a, you know, part of, of, of what, would be, what would be a reason not to get involved? So I think Hector, you know, Hector pointed out towards the beginning, his comments were very insightful and I'm gonna, I'm gonna reiterate them. It depends on the group's goals and objectives. And, you know, if the, if the group is facing some of these headwinds and thinks, hey, three, five years from now, are we still gonna be able to, to be doing this well, even though we're the, we're the biggest group in, in this, you know, Western part of Ohio? You know, and I just think a lot of groups are thinking that there's more and more challenges and, 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 and being part of a large, even a larger group could be beneficial. But again, this is not right for everybody. And, and we're not here waving the flag. Hey, everyone do private equity. Um, that's it. What, what I do think though is important because there are some negatives, right? It's not, I mean, there's, you know, they take over the business aspects of the practice which could be a big positive, but for micromanaging doctors, if depending on the personalities, it might not be. And the other thing is you gotta make sure you find the right cultural fit. This mm -hmm. is not just about money. This is about meeting these people. And truly we use the word partnership, but partnering with them that they have, that, that they have a good vision for how they're gonna grow this and you trust them and you meet them a lot and have dinner several times and cross-examine you and they cross-examine, um, you and you cross-examine them. So again, there's there there could be good reasons. There, you know, but again, it's not right for every group. But what I always say is get the information. Don't just say, ah, private equity. A lot of groups three years ago were like, private equity, I want to hear about it. More groups now are at least saying, okay, I'll listen, show me the facts, and then let us decide whether or not this is right for our group or whether we want to stay independent. It, you know, and, 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 and deal with these other issues, these local competitive issues and other risks that we're facing. And, and I would just add, there's a, there's a, a practical, but, but a non-intuitive aspect that, that's fascinating, which is the groups that command the best terms and conditions 
are, are, are inevitably the ones that don't have to do anything, that have a very strong market share. They're relevant. They have great managed care rates. They have strategic affiliations that are beneficial to them with the hospitals and the health systems. But they say, you know what? The market environment is hot and now it's white hot. Um, what would be the, you know, wouldn't it be imperative on us as fiduciaries and owners to explore a potential pathway from a position of consummate strength? Because we really work with two types of practices. The ones that are like the one I just described, very forward thinking and have the luxury that we all should strive for, which is the ability to not have to do anything, right? Um, to have the ability to say, no, if it, it's not in our best interest and it doesn't align with our goals and objectives, we can remain a very strong, viable, long-term, independent going concern. That's a great place to be. That is the consummate position of strength from a negotiating perspective. But the other, other client type is where the wolf's at the door, it's a day late, the practice is a dollar short, and now they're saying, hey, can, can, you, can you all get us those premium terms and conditions that we keep hearing about in your press releases? Well, you know, it's a very active market environment, but you're, you're a rescue mission, right? And, and it's very hard to gain premium terms and conditions when, when you're in that sort of paradigm. So yeah, there's that dynamic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And, and I think sometimes the 800 pound gorilla in the room is what are the primary care people in your region yeah. going to, how are they going to respond? Well, they form a 250 person primary care group and hire six orthopedic surgeons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? You know, so you really want a strong orthopedic group that doesn't probably burn those relationships. Exactly. Uh, um, and, and by the way, it could be, it could be, like I said before, you know, I'm sure your hospital has a lot of primary care where uh, employed docs where yeah. you and your other orthopedic surgeons uh, get a lot of their work versus sending it out to a group of the community yeah. and a multi-specialty group of the community. Yeah, if they bring in like Optum's doing, if they if they even stay independent and bring in their own specialists, um, yeah, that could hurt the other orthopedic groups in the community. So. Yeah, that's what the challenge is. Like in the Northeast, there's a group, you know, the, the uh, Summit City MD. Yeah. You know, that, that is merging with a number of big primary care groups. Yeah, now it's called Summit Health. The company's called Summit Health. Yeah. Well, Summit and Health. they purchased orthopedic groups. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a portfolio company, one of the larger uh, private equity firms, a firm called Warburg Pincus. Oh yeah, Warburg Pincus. Yeah, they yeah. Were mutual. So, uh, just a yeah. couple of comments uh, before we close up on how is this going to affect the orthopedic device industry in a sense? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about that, Hector? What are your thoughts about that? You know, to a farm, an ortho farm or ortho device. You know what? what, what yeah, you know, there's a there's a there's an inverse relationship between. Uh, uh, consolidation and 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 the pricing of any service or product, right? Uh, so um, my long-term prognosis prognosis uh, to put my economist hat on is, you know, any industry uh, that consolidates as orthopedic and musculoskeletal care will and is being uh, in front of our eyes, uh, purchasing power and purchasing power parity shifts, right? Uh, to some degree, right? 
But uh, I think as we're seeing today, margin compression on, on, on medical device technology, and in particular, those going into the orthopedic care continuum, um, is already sort of seeing margin compression to some degree. I think we'll just see that play out over, over a much longer term and, and to a much higher degree. All right. Um, well, I'm going to ask for any final questions. I don't want to keep anyone too much longer. I strongly recommend uh, anyone going to the AOS uh, to go to this event. I think it's going to be a high point. I really mean that. Um, no matter what your status is now, status has changed tomorrow. Um, no question. So I, I want to thank everyone who showed up today. Um, and, um, and especially thank Gary and Hector for uh, amazing article, just remarkable, uh, kind of put Joey on a map. <laughs> and uh, um, I think it's great. And I want to thank you guys sincerely. And everybody I put else. up my Ukrainian flag in solidarity. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all, an honor and a pleasure, and we're at your service in any way. Thank you so much. We'll see you all in Chicago. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye now.